How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm exemplary. 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 I should probably just go to bed and let you do the show. Then. <laughs> I don't know if I've so, ever been exemplary. Uh, I, one of my favorite sayings is, "If I was doing any better, there'd be two of me." <laughs> so, that's been a good day. So, well, that's good deal. Just glad we finally got we're able to uh, to make contact. So now I see Ron's picture on the call. Still have not heard his dulcet tones yet. Well, you guys are talking. I'm not going to interrupt <laughs> you in the middle of a conversation. Especially well, you know, then this is nothing like dinner for geeks. <laughs> <laughs> no. Back to the bin. I've never seen The Godfather. I have no idea what you're talking about. You seriously have never seen The Godfather? Never seen any of the films. I don't know if I could have you on. Wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. And you're in your 40s? Yes. What have you been doing for these 40 some odd years? <laughs> <laughs> well, like tonight, I was watching an episode of Ultraman uh, uh, Towards the Future, the Australian Ultraman show. Well, I could see why that would prevent you from watching the greatest movie ever made. Wait, we were talking what, about Star Hero? Wars? <laughs> no, not local. He- Good God. <laughs> uh, you guys, I, I don't know. I, I think we got to just call the episode right now. <laughs> That's it. We're done, Jerry. We've already, we've, we've already just blown through our, our bag of tricks here. I never cared for Marlon Brando. And so when it well, it's to... not. It is a different performance than he's done in any other movie, with the exception of the Freshman with Matthew Broderick. Which I saw the Freshman, where Does he's where he's you know par- parodying his Godfather role. Yeah. Uh, I saw that one. Now, if the the uh, uh, Komodo Dragon was in the Godfather, I probably would have saw that too. <laughs> uh, you, you need you need to sit down one day and and just. Breeze through six hours of the first two movies. Uh, Scott says the third one's good. And Scott doesn't know what he's talking about. Since since when are you uh, taking any any? He's he's actually online. I asked if he was around. I didn't know if I was going to maybe see if I could get him to jump in here for a minute. Oh, okay, yeah. But uh, I don't know if you want him to jump in since this is the yeah. uh, the less interesting two spotlights. Yeah, the less less interesting two. As long as he can throw in a couple of what's it called and and pretend to be the third of the less interesting three, I think he'll be all right with that. But now, nah, if he if he wants to come in and talk a little bit, that's fine. We've got no problem with that. Really, the whole the whole thing with the less interesting three it really it it's it stemmed from you know him you know, giving me the Mickey on uh, he who shall not be don- donkey punched uh, on on his web pat web and his his uh, podcast. And it just sort of grew from there. It's real. I mean, there, there honestly really aren't a, a, a lot of real hard feelings. We just sort of play it up. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I would for theater. Yeah, I actually have that listed as my job on my Facebook profile. You know, geek number three of the less interesting three. So, <laughs> and and Ryan is so uninteresting that that he couldn't even uh, he couldn't even handle coming on for this. <laughs> well, yeah, no, Ryan really just does his own thing. Ryan, you know, for all the oddities that Scott has and that Ron has and that I obviously have, Ryan is Ryan puts us to shame. Um, he's just, I mean, Man, Ron, he makes you, tea for a living. I'll put it that way. 
What what exactly does that mean? I'm I'm confused. He makes artificial teeth. He's, he he owns a uh, he and his dad own a, a dental laboratory where they make false teeth and he hand sculpts them, and you know he has got some pretty impressive sculpting skills. Um, but yeah, that's that's his his job. Hey, making teeth. Yeah, Ron, Ron and I were were talking the other day, and I was saying how uh, since I've been listening to the show. Uh, I've enjoyed it pretty much from the beginning, but I'm enjoying it more as as I've been able to kind of start distinguishing each of you and know you know as as I've learned your different personalities and uh, you know with the voices I know who's talking. Let's see, uh, Scott. I said you want to jump in for a few. He said, "Huh, would be fun, but I'm in bed. I was asleep, but the transmitter called me with an off-air issue. Got that fixed. I'm trying to get back to sleep." <laughs> So let yeah. me just say, okay, you dullard. So you're not you're not sure. I said I would call him a pussy. But just, that's just me. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, I would have gone with another word, but I'm rated G. No, no woman would have talked to me. So. Oh, so I've got the first bleep of the episode. Then excellent. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't even know if I would bleep out pussy. It's. Yeah, it's not. Not. I don't know if it's a strong enough word to bleep out. Generally, it you know, short of I don't know, short of the F word, I, I don't always bleep things. Uh, did he just respond again? No, uh, I guess that's it. All right, he's going to sleep. Well, he's he, gonna say like four in the morning. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say four o'clock comes awfully early for senior Ivan. Mm-hmm. He responded again. Plus, I don't want to steal their big moment. Ah. Well, that's awfully sweet of him. Jeff <laughs> says that you're <laughs> a pussy. <laughs> See if that motivates him any. I don't know if that's getting any response at all. <laughs> if uh, if that doesn't get a response, then we'll uh, we'll jump into our, our showing. And oops, yeah, we lost Ron. Uh oh. Let me try and add him in again. You back, Ron? I'm back. What was that all about? I have no idea. It's, I think it's because uh, I was making fun of Scott and you guy, and you you were trying to defend him. Never. <laughs> that's that's something that has never happened. I've never defended Scott. So now, uh, let's see. It's it's Wednesday, so you guys are recording tomorrow night. Yeah. Correct. Has anybody else registered any votes besides me? We won't know uh, until Scott lets us know. There's there was one post on the web page. I think was that was that you that posted that was on the me. Facebook page? Yeah. yeah. As far as I know, that's the only thing. <laughs> I, I never check the the Gmail. Scott's got a filter set up to to where the uh, the, din, the the geeks at dinner for geeks goes to his inbox. So so he gets all of that. And we just sort of let him have that. And yeah, well, yeah, I, I, yeah. if, I, if you've I, ever noticed, Scott will constantly complain about how we don't help out and we don't. Add anything, uh, of course. Then he won't let us. He's got to control it all. Yeah, not a shock, not a shock yeah. at all. So I, I had sent him. Jeff says that you're a pussy, and he sent back nonsense. I didn't tell him to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's knock knock. Who's there? Control freak. Now you say control control freak who? Yeah, <laughs> control freak who? Yeah, that's let's see. Yeah. That is that is our lovely Scotty boy. <laughs> 
but you are his uh, his minion, aren't you? I am his minion. We we had a discussion several years ago where I asked to be promoted to henchman, and I was actually in a recruiting mode for a while there, trying to find other minions to serve underneath me as the uh, as the henchman. I think as um, the henchman, you get like some kind of a uniform. There is. There's also there's also the, there's a an HMO plan that's available at that point and uh, a retirement <laughs> package, um, and a really nifty hat. But yeah, the only uh, the only minion I was able to effectively recruit was his son, and he was kind of already a minion by birth, so it it, it kind of just fell by the wayside there. <laughs> we lost Ron again. Uh, see, we're talking nice about Scott. Ron disappears. I think it's on, I think it's personal. Yeah, I think so. I think he <laughs> he didn't say anything bad, bad about him the other night either. You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school, and yet you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. Sometimes when we have the big family dinners with you know spouses and kids talking in the background, you'll hear her. She's the one with the, the noticeable southern drawl. So uh, to me, you all have noticeable self-control. Really? See, and I just don't, I just don't think that I have a draw. I mean, when I get really into stuff, it, it starts to come out, but I don't know. I guess it's because I've got the real deep draw around me that it just, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't become obvious. But I don't know what, where, I mean, I'm not able to get Ron back yet, but, uh, oh yeah, well, I, I joke around about that with, with the guys too, where I try and act as if I don't have an accent. Yeah, you, you you definitely have a uh, the the New York accent. So not that I can hear. <laughs> well, well you are right. to to me, I sound I to me it sounds like I speak normal and everybody else has accents. So what can I tell you? Luckily, I don't. Well, you don't have a distinguished like a, a serious Southern accent. No, I don't have a Southern accent at all. It's a Massachusetts accent. Oh, okay, that would explain why. <laughs> So and I, I and and I mean Scott has has a pretty distinct accent, and Jeff I think you do. Ryan not so much either. Well, he was from Miami, so he's not really from the South. <laughs> <laughs> Miami doesn't count as the South. The whole st- the whole state of Florida, with the exception of Jacksonville, does not count. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's it, there's it, there's you know with the last native Floridian, please turn out the lights. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, it's, it's got. Yeah, Paul, I don't know if you've ever heard that Miami's actually the uh, seventh borough of uh, New York. (laughs) I don't think New York is what people think New York is if they haven't been here. You know, it's it's funny, and and, uh, we'll get to it in a little while, but Jeff, the the book that you picked, uh, it's the third issue of a four-issue story. Mm -hmm. And in the first issue... You know, automatically somebody's walking through the streets and, uh, you know, a woman's walking through the streets. So the first thing that happens is, you know, a, a group goes to mug her. And I think, like, that's that's the way people think New York is. You, you know, you can't walk a block without having somebody try and mug you. And thankfully, the only time I've been, been to New York, I went to, uh, to New York City back in the uh, late 90s for, or mid-90s for a college radio 
uh, conference and thankfully we latched on very soon to a New York City native and you know so we got to walk around with a guided tour of the city and all that and anytime anything any remotely happened to that he was automatically just hey keep walking keep walking we're not talking to you keep walking so we you know yeah, I'm thinking, I'm betting, you know, it, it's so exaggerated that you probably weren't mugged more than three or four times while you were up. <laughs> Actually, I was mugged in Philadelphia a couple of years prior to that, but uh, no, New York was fine. It's it, it's definitely not what its reputation would have. But uh, let me uh, let me bring us in, and uh, we could actually start the show. <clears throat> uh, just uh, while I got you guys, to, are you familiar with the tradition of the laws? Tradition of the laws, no. It started when Bill and I did Dueling Arnold Schwarzeneggers, and uh, <laughs> the bit, which you should listen to at some point, uh, began with us warming up, so it was like, la, 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 and that's ah. become a tradition that we get laws from our guests on the show. That, that, I, I, I was trying to figure out what that was. <laughs> I was listening to it the other day. So, yeah, it's, it's become a tradition, so I'm going to push you guys, I'm, I'm hitting you guys up for laws right ah. now. All right. All right, Ron, you go first. Ah. Nah, nah, nah. Right, that's kind of weak. All right, Jeff. <laughs> Let's see. <clears throat> la 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 la. Right, I la, think la. I got to kill this tradition. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. You leave it to the less interesting three to to, to kill the tradition. <laughs> so, hello everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and if you haven't already been able to figure it out, I am here with two of the less interesting three. I have Mr. Jeff Doak. Greetings, Squire. And Ron. Just Ron. Just Ron. That's because no one can announce Sadowski. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, though, there's 13 Ron Sadowskis on Skype. And, and, and I'm, the, I'm the most interesting of them all. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody still doesn't know what I'm talking about, Ron and Jeff are both uh, regulars of the four people on Dinner for Geeks. Uh, Scott Reifen's Dinner already been on. I'm sorry? It's dinner four geeks. Didn't I say that? Number four. He's, Ron's, Ron's doing a Scott imitation, putting the accent <laughs> on the number four. Okay. Dinner so, four yeah, like, like I said, dinner for geeks. And uh, <laughs> Scott has already been on twice, and Ryan has rejected my uh, generous invitation and therefore is no longer alive to me. And he will pay the price for this, yes. So... I am very happy, though, that you you two gentlemen have accepted my invitation, and I'm glad to have you guys here. Well, we appreciate it, Paul, and uh, thank you for extending the invitation. So now, other than dinner for geeks... Uh, thank you. Do you guys have have any other podcast activities, or is that just it? Um, for me, this is it. This is my first non-D4G podcast appearance. I know I've, I've been mentioned on other ones. Uh, most notably the he who shall not be donkey punched and, and his, <laughs> his little uh, setup over there that, uh, that started this whole thing. So, And then we've, been, we've been waiting a while to get this up and rolling, and i got to tell you, both Scott and Bill did want to be here, but unfortunately schedules are what they are and we couldn't line them up, so it's just the three of us tonight. Be nice and cozy. Yeah. Light a fire, grab a steaming hot, hot cocoa. Yeah. Before, we get, before we get into our books, uh, why don't I get you guys to just give your uh, comic book backgrounds a little bit. All right, Ron, um, you want to take it first, my friend? Uh, sure. Uh, let's see. Start reading comic books. 
when I was a uh, knee-high to a grasshopper or even shorter than that uh, because my brother, who's seven years older than me, was a big comic book fan. And so I always had comic books growing up. Uh, and I moved into my own right as a comic book uh, collector slash reader, uh, I don't know, uh, sometime in the early 80s. So I was uh, uh, very much uh, uh, stuck in that whole uh, the black and white explosion and uh, the independent uh, movement. Uh, but then uh, after got married, had kids and all that stuff, uh, it always seemed to be second uh, of second importance other things I had to get done. So uh, I haven't really actively collected comic books in a while. I every now and then pick up trades and um, the uh, reprints and stuff like that, especially now that when a comic book uh, story runs, you know, eight to 12 issues. And I can't afford an issue, mind you. Yeah, yeah, $4 an issue. It's cheap for just to wait a year and buy the trade. So I can't argue with that, but it is tough to get it out of your blood once it's in there. Oh, yeah. How about you, Jeff? Um, well, like Ron, I started, you know, reading comic books as a uh, as a young child, and um, it was primarily just anything that uh, that Scott would actually let me touch, you know, because <laughs> uh, Scott was. You know, I grew up across the street from Scott. We were, you know, across the street neighbors. I actually am living in his childhood home now. It's my my house, the ancestral house of Rythen, as I refer to it. Uh, and he was he was just as neurotic about his things then as he is now. Um, and so anything that he felt that I was, that, that I was trustable to look at, he would, would stand over me and watch as I, you know, making sure that I didn't, you know, bend the, uh, the, the spine as I was taking out of the bag and off the box. And then of course I also had an uncle, a, uh, an older cousin, uh, Chris, who, um, was a, you know, the same mindset and I got all of his hand me on stuff. That's why as a, you know, eight year old, I was well versed in the, uh, the, the story and legend of Howard the duck. Um, and so it was, it was primarily just pretty much all Marvel for me growing up, um, heavy doses of star Wars, heavy doses of, uh, of Spider-Man and, and, you know, pretty much any appearance that kiss ever made in a comic book. It was, you know, all there. Um, and you know, like Ron sort of faded away somewhat as I got older. Um, then post-college I got back into it when, um, I decided to take a look at what all this this fuss was about about this McFarlane character and the, and the Spawn comic books, and so I started picking that up. And then, of course, you know, had to get you know Dark Ages Spawn and and you know Sam and Twitch, and spread from there. Picked up the a good long run of all the Dark Horse Star Wars comics. Started getting back into Spider Man. Um, uh, became a really big fan of, of Brian Michael Bendis for a while. There was was reading Powers on a regular basis. Um, and then a lot of the independent stuff too, like Frank Cho's Liberty Meadows, really enjoyed the heck out of that. Uh, probably my favorite book of the last probably 15 years is Aaron Williams' PS 238, which is the, uh, the, uh, elementary school for superheroes. And it was just a great story, great series while it lasted. Supposedly he's in the process of retooling it for a, an online comic. And I am, I'm really you know excited about that when that finally does happen. Cause it's just a, you know, a great series, great book. Um, as far as now, probably within the last probably five years, five to seven years, I've, I'm not a regular buyer anymore, but I'll still, you know, peruse the, uh, the aisles and it's just, it's a little bit difficult since there's no longer a comic book store in our hometown. Mm. have to go to Jacksonville, which is an hour south, or Savannah, which is an hour north. 
So it's, a, I mean, it's a challenge. I mean, we've got a books a million, but yeah, not you know, finding finding books at the at the books a dozen, as, as Ryan calls it, is is always a challenge. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. The demise of the comic book store is really uh, just a disappointing way that this hobby has gone, and I think little by little the hobby is kind of, if not fading, certainly morphing. And and uh, you know the the comic book store seems to be going the way of the dodo, although I I could see because you know of course we don't have the toy geek with us today, but as the, those collectibles <laughs> become more of the focus of these stores, I could still see there always being kind of a back issue pile somewhere. Right. So I think you know the, the the it's just a matter of finding the stores. Thankfully, we have a few over here. You guys ever just feel a, like traveling? Just, just a couple. A couple yeah. yeah, if you guys feel like traveling a couple of thousand miles, we're okay. Yeah, I, I miss I missed the third issue of the Star Wars, so I'm I'm gonna have to make a trip, you know, you know halfway up the East Coast. So and sure. I and, I, and I'm, I was the lucky recipient of the first and third part of the 3D Star Wars, the Black Thorn, and of course now I will have to spend the rest of my life trying to find that little issue. It's. I mean, I, I guess you know. There's always the online sources, which was where which was where the one and three came from. <laughs> you may not, I, I don't know, you may, may not have heard this story. It happened fairly early in the podcast run, but uh, Scott was bemoaning the fact that uh, the one of the big glaring absences in his comic collection was the Blackthorn Star Wars 3D issue two, the uh, the bookstore that he went to in college whatever reason didn't pull that one for him so for you know 20 years you know 15 20 years however long it was he was missing that one issue and so you know of course with christmas coming up i think it was it christmas no it wasn't christmas it was his birthday that's what it was, it was. Birthday. Yeah. and so uh i went on ebay found somebody that had the three for sale and bought the set gave him number two and then just because ron said that he had missed the entire blackthorn run of star wars and he had all these other star the other blackthorn 3ds i gave him one in three which means that he's so basically you <laughs> you as as a gift to Scott you mm-hmm. gave Ron his dilemma. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> <laughs> very nice of you. Yeah, I, I I do try. <laughs> yeah, I must have missed that. I think I've listened to all the episodes, but I must have missed that story. That was one of the very first uh, Beware of Geeks bearing gifts, I think. So. That and also probably you were distracted by uh, Ryan interrupting constantly. What's so, it called? Yeah. <laughs> we just need a we just need a, like a, a recorder, a digital recorder with the only thing that's on it is what's it called? That way, so every couple of minutes, just to, to make us feel at home, we'll hear what's it called? What's it called? What's it called? Ryan Ryan's shining moment for me was when he did the library cop on Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason that really stood out when he did that. Yeah, Ryan has his moments. He's 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 the one that's the, the newest addition to the group because, like, I've known Scott my entire life, uh, and Scott and I have known Ron since high school, which for us is you know twenty five years, somewhere along in there. So, and Ryan, we've only known for what maybe the last probably seven to ten, I guess maybe. I think uh, ten, you guys. Relative newcomer. Yeah, fairly, fairly, pretty much a newcomer, but you know, he's, 
the personalities that each of us have, we, we complement each other well. And, and Ryan's one of the few people I know that can hold his own in an argument with Scott, although Scott would disagree completely with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, your, your show is, I, I find it to be very entertaining, and I think it breaks every rule of podcasting and yet makes it work just the same. Well, we have a lot of fun recording it. That's uh, you know highlight of my week. So yeah, well, well we you know we we had our one dinner for uh, well not dinner for geeks I guess dinner for freaks that we did uh, as part of our Disney uh, extravaganza last summer, and uh, that was one of the highlights of my podcasting uh, career. I guess I don't know if <laughs> career is the right word for it, but uh, <laughs> that was that was one of the most enjoyable ones. And basically, what we did was we stole your format for a night. <laughs> I have to go back and find that one. Yeah, if you yeah, look, there's, there's, I think, either three or four episodes of our Disney trip, and uh, I, it's either the first or second one. I don't even recall which. But basically, you know, the the, the night, the one there was one night, or one day and night that Scott, Bill, and I, along with my two kids, uh, spent the entire day together, and then when we had dinner that night, we just put up the recorder and let it go. And once again, I bring the room to a crashing halt. Actually, I was, I, was just, I was just trying to think of how I'm going to tell you that you that there's licensing to be involved. Just talk to old man DeManza. <laughs> I pay nothing. I get paid nothing, and I pay nothing. You know, they should they should they should double your pay. It's well worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So you guys feel like talking some specific comics now? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I didn't select a uh, Pacific Comics. Were we supposed to choose one of those? No, no you, 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 you chose specific. an entire collection in one, <laughs> in one book. But uh, generally... Well, I, never know, I don't know if I'm ever going to be back on a show like this again after this. So, <laughs> so you need to do a year's worth of episodes tonight. <laughs> yeah, everybody's going to listen to this episode and think, wow, Scott really does do a lot of editing to make these guys sound interesting. So... <laughs> Uh, no, I, th- I think we're going to be okay on that, to be honest with you. I'll just send this over to Scott and let him edit it. There you go. Snip. <laughs> come back as a three-minute segment. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. So our standard is we do Marvel first. So, uh, right. Jeff, you got the Marvel. All right, I do indeed. Yeah, my uh, my my dad has been getting rid of a whole bunch of my uncle's stuff. He's sort of inherited a whole bunch of his stuff while he is uh, away for the next uh, extended bit, 
And uh, we found a big handful of old 70s, 80s comic goodies. So I grabbed one that looked interesting to me. And that would be Marvel Team-Up team up with Spider-Man and Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. That would be Marvel Team-Up number 84. It's from August of 1979. And I've got to tell you, this is probably the most 70s a comic could be. Um, there's so many just idioms and tropes from the seventies in this book that it's just, uh, it just, it just drips with disco goodness. Um, it starts up and like, like Paul, like you had said earlier, it's the, the third out of a four issue series. Um, and they do a really good job. Actually, they, they spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the, the background, of some of the characters, uh, it picks up with uh, in the the, the helic or helicarrier from the uh, from the the Avengers, um, but it's under the control of Hydra at the moment. Um, big splash page, and it's got um, it's got Clay Quarterman, hypnotized agent of Shield, Boomerang, and the Silver Samurai, and then back in the shadows would be uh, Madame Hydra, now known as Viper. Um, the one big thing, and it, it really sets it as a '70s comic because they're watching a big tv screen and they're talking about the eastern half of the united states millions of people tuning into the nightly network tv newscast and it's it's obviously walter cronkite but it can't be walter cronkite they have they can't use the name but you know it's, it's obviously his likeness they're talking about president carter from there it goes into the next page and it goes into several pages from there talking about Madame Hydra and Viper and about where they have come with her history and how she was in the last battle of the Serpent Squad, uh, was defeated by Nomad who was Captain America in disguise, um, how she was ca- trapped in a, a, a house that was exploded and was falling and just happened to find the one little cove inside the, the the collapsing house where she was able to survive and remembered that there was a a, a hidden trap door a way of, of getting out and uh, she was able to find that and digs through the sewer finally gets through uses every ounce of her strength to push open the the manhole cover and she's walking down the street you. with her head yes exactly with her head and so she's walking down the street, hoping that nobody notices her. And then there's this big 70s, just orange and yellow conversion van that just happens to roll by. The only thing that's missing is the big spray painted free candy on the side of the van. And a uh, person stops, rolls down the window. And instead of, you know, cat calling and saying, hey, good looking, we'll be back to pick you up later. Uh, driver says, you know, comrade Viper, I'm a friend. Get in the van. I will help you escape. OK, well, seems legit. And it's actually, <laughs> you know how many times I've had that happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> Happens all the time. It explains a lot of about the different watch lists that we're both on. Um, yeah. And the the driver of the van is actually Ishiro Tagara, who's a, a cadre leader with the Japanese Red Army who worked occasionally with Hydra. And you know he says he drives right past the police line, and there's Captain America in his in his his nomad costume. Then starts to go into the story of how she and and Tagara you know work together and fall in love, and eventually there's the, the master plan that she wants to crush the United States once and for all, 
you know, with America mortally wounded, the oppressed peoples of the world could then rise in the ultimate revolution. And the first thing they had to do was test the hypno beam. So she sh turns the hypno beam onto Shield's underground headquarters and tells everyone just take a walk for an hour. <laughs> and they all leave. And then comes the first action. This is one single panel with uh, showing the flashback to Spider Man and Black Widow battling the Silver Samurai, defeating them. And of course, she then, you know, regrets saying, oh, the wall crawler's interference forced me to devise an alternative system and wasted precious time. And then just when you think that it couldn't get more 70s with the van and Walter Cronkite, um, in comes the plan of sim simplicity was foiled by the fact that the teleport ring that she had created got lost in the mail and accidentally misdelivered to a comedy actor. That would be John Belushi. <laughs> They're flashing back to the uh, the Marvel team up, team up number 74, and there's Silver Samurai and John Belushi dressed up as Samurai, and they're battling, and then moves on to there saying that now that it's teleported to the helicarrier, she's able to come in and, and, and finally you know teleport into the sick bay and take over the helicarrier. And then they you know, show her again, talking about the video phone. They replace the doctor's video phone with one modified to project a hypno beam. And there's the you know, TRS-80 looking computer sitting there with the screen and the built-in keyboard. And then they were able to ensnare everybody on the helicarrier and took, took control of the impregnable headquarters. And she's talking they got, about... She, they got headquarters what, pregnant? Yeah, no, no, impregnable. No. impregnable. That, that means it uses birth control. <laughs> yes, that's it. And we're paying for it now. Thanks. Never mind. We're not getting political enough. Now feel free. Oh, good, because we actually try and limit ourselves on our show. It's, it's amazing. Uh, still comes through, though. Um, but so she's she's enjoying the fact that she's taken control of the helicarrier and saying that she's going to, you know, talking about expunging the government, and they're headed to Washington to take care of the president, the vice president, cabinet, Congress, Supreme Court, the Joint Chiefs, all tonight. And considering where Carter's administration was at in August of 1979, that might not have been a bad thing. Um, then on the next page, it comes into Enter Our Heroes. Now, all throughout the, 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 the first six pages of, of the comic so far, they've done a really good job of backstory. They've done a really good job of talking about, okay, this is coming from Marvel Team-Up number 74, this is going back to Marvel Team-Up number 57, and talking about the background of the characters and where they come from. And then they flash to Spider-Man and the Black Widow, and they just happen to throw in that uh, she looks like the Black Widow, but right now she thinks that she's a school teacher named Nancy Rushman. What? And no reference whatsoever as to why she thinks that she's the school teacher. All that we know is that she's she looks like the Black Widow. She's doing some of the things the Black Widow does, but she's terrified to death because she thinks she's just a school teacher. I guess it's sort of like the Long Kiss Goodnight, but in reverse. Maybe I don't know. Familiar with that film? Anybody? Anyone? Uh, yes, absolutely. A little bit. Yeah. But it's so, it's yeah. I mean, basically, it's a four issue story, and they kind of leave you in the dark as to what what's what's going on with that but if you've read the other issues they don't really make clear what happened to her or they haven't up until this point yet so that's really all spider-man knows is that she thinks she's a school teacher yeah and i was tr i was trying to be fairly you know organic in in my 
you know, enjoying of this issue and reading of this issue made it a point not to go online and check, you know, any of the sources to find out, okay, why did she do this? Okay, you know, what was the John Belushi issue all about? I, I tried not to, to know anything other than just this issue that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, now, I mean, I've, I've, I enjoyed the issue. We'll get into that in just a little bit once we, we finish the summary. But, um, you know, there's, there, that was the only part that really struck me as why are they not explaining this? Why she thinks she's a school teacher? So, but, you know, so far in the story, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a, a minor complaint, you know, so Spider-Man, Black Widow coming in on, on hang gliders, no, no less. So they're trying to find that one little channel in the airstream so they don't get chopped to bits by the, the propellers. And they get right on there and spider sense tingling and there's a, the, uh, shield agent battle squad making a surprise a surprise sweep of the carrier's flight deck checking out making sure everything is all right so they're able to hide and they call saying they're moving on to sector two and then they cut their spider-man and and black widow on the side of the helicarrier avoiding detection and so they're walking down trying to figure out where you know it says that you know black widow is fearless um her her secret identity at this moment or the identity that she has right now is absolutely terrified two miles above the ground hanging by by the ship with toes and fingertips and so spider-man grabs her and and apologizes for putting her into this situation and i'm not going to let you fall and so then what happens next is she lifts the bottom half of peter's mask and lays a wet sloppy one right on him and it's awkward you know anytime it's anybody other than mary jane it's 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 awkward with peter but you know hey it's it's black widow for crying out loud not going to turn that one down a lot at at all Um, (laughs) so it cuts off then spider-man looks off in the distance and here comes nick fury's air car coming up right on schedule and he's able to land on the the platform. He talks to the hypnotized agent and says, I "Want to, re- to report to my office? I don't want to. I want to see you as soon as I'm down." And the agent says, "Sure." And then off screen from there, there's Silver Samurai saying, "Why let him land? If he suspects nothing, why not destroy him now when he's helpless?" Viper tells him, "No, we we need to. If we destroy him now, the Americans will know something is wrong. Let him land, come and board, and then we can you know, kill him in the privacy of our own living room or, or whatever they're calling it now." Um, so Nick shows up and is walking through the, uh, through the, the, the landing bay and the, it, the, the narration then cuts to a, a, the, the internal monologue of the second of the, the team up Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu and talks about how he's, you know, so brave and he, you know, he, he, he knows it's an ambush and he walks away from his assassins without a backwards glance, trusting that I can stop them before anyone can fire and I will not fail. And then no lie. It actually says that that one iconic karate yell, hi, the first karate action of the, of the, the, the comic actually says hi, And for a split second, I was expecting it to be Miss Piggy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> And he talks about how these men are careless and their minds are so focused only on their target that they fail to see me. And then Nick turns around and thanks Shang-Chi for keeping him safe. And they walk then. And in comes the boomerang. Knocks Nick Fury unconscious. Shang-Chi rises with his fists ready to go against the, the, the evil boomerang. And the battle then after a two-page spread of... of uh, 
model car Corvettes. Lots of great 70s ads in this issue, by the way, too. We'll get in, if we have time, we'll get into that a little bit. But it then cuts to the first real action of the of the episode or of the of the issue with Shang Chi going up against Boomerang, and it shows, you know, Boomerang doing his best black era, his best uh, Green Arrow imitation. Here, catch a razor bang- Boomerang. All right, how about a Gasserang? It's it's either either Green Arrow or it's Batman. Really, really bad Adam West Batman. Not sure. You know, with all these spe- you know, very specialized boomerangs going. And of course, Shang-Chi able to deflect them and hold his breath to avoid the nerve gas and the gasserang. <laughs> yeah, the gasserang. And they continue on the fight on the next page and they're into, they're going down an elevator into the lower levels of, of the helipad, of the, of the, uh, the helicarrier. And so the boomerang now, instead of being a, a useful tool to the boomerang, there's not enough room for it to, to fly and achieve maximum efficiency. So it bounces around and he's able to work his way closer to him and then knock him unconscious. And so Shang-Chi has won this round, or at least he thinks he does, until there's one boomerang left to throw, which is a bomb boomerang. Is that a bomberang? I don't know. Anyway. So then there's video screen of Boomerang reporting back into the Viper saying that both Fury and the Kung Flu Playmate, which really got me thinking completely something different, but uh, taken care of permanently. And then cuts to Spider-Man still walking around with the Black Widow on the side of, of the ship, hoping that nothing has gone wrong. Uh, they come into a storeroom where supposedly Fury's diagram said that wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be far from the deck and they were safe. And then, of course... The moment he says that, on comes the lights, and there's the S.H.I.E.L.D. security squad ready to take the two of them to the main bridge. They then go on and you know, show the, the nightmares to where, or not, they don't show the nightmares, but they talk about how Black Widow has seen Viper before and she remembers her from her nightmares, and she has a little blackout moment, a, a DFO, if you will. It's a medical term, it stands for done fell over. Uh, <laughs> So Spider-Man is, is holding her in his arms, saying, what did you do to her? And she refused to answer. I asked questions, she refused to answer, and the Viper did something to her. And so she's, Viper is getting, she's getting, she's getting agitated. And in comes Shang-Chi in, in handcuffs, and Boomerang is right behind him, saying, you know, I thought you might want to question him. And Viper says, do not think. I don't pay you to think. Only do as you're told. But put your prisoner with the others and then kill them all at once. And then all of a sudden, ah, it's red herring time. Shang-Chi wasn't in handcuffs. He only had his hand behind his back. And the boomerang wasn't boomerang. It was Nick Fury. They had knocked boomerang unconscious, had secured him, and Nick put the costume on and made the way from the storeroom up to the bridge. And battle ensues with Spider-Man jumping into action against the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Viper makes a break towards the, towards the end, and Spider-Man realizes that the president that's what the target is there's a a joint session of congress tonight and then one final splash page of just a little bit of a fight between spider-man and the silver samurai trying to go after the viper to stop her and the silver samurai steps in takes a swing at him with the sword not enough to make a full slice or even to make make full contact with spider-man but it's enough to knock him off of his feet and conveniently through a open porthole out into to to the air, two miles above the ground, and that leaves us ready for issue four of the four issue series. 
Jeff, I got to ask something here. Yes. I selected an 80 issue comic. How many <laughs> hundreds of pages were in this thing? Um, actually, it was, uh, let's see, uh, not counting ads was 30 pages. I'm, I'm, and, and, and what page did finally uh, uh, the Kung Fu Master show up on? 15. So he, he starts, starts halfway talking, through the issue. starts talking up yeah. 14. And For then a team up. For his team up. Yeah. For a team up, there's precious little teaming up. Yeah, actually, there's no teaming up. Spider-Man and 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 Shang-Chi never actually take on a a, a mutual foe. They're never never in action with the, with the exception of, well, they're not even in the same panel in action. Yeah, they don't interact they're the same, with each other. They're on the same page. Shang-Chi on the top panel and Spider-Man in the panel below that, showing a, a little bit of action. But no, they're for this to be a Marvel team up, it, it wasn't wasn't a lot of teaming up. But just to give a little bit more background on it, the first issue of this four-issue story was Spider-Man and the Black Widow. Second issue was Spider-Man and Nick Fury. Third issue was Spider-Man and Shang-Chi. And the fourth issue is Spider-Man, Black Widow, Shang-Chi, and Nick Fury. Ah. So they do kind of put it all together at the end. So this is still building up to that final issue. So setting 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 the table, if you will, for that that uh, the the wrap up then, which is which is not necessarily ideal storytelling. If you're going to tell a four issue story, I don't know if three quarters of it is supposed to be table setting, <laughs> <laughs> or at least the 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 the, you know, the the third issue shouldn't be a bit more action than that. Which I think was one of the big complaints that I had. There was a lot of 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 you know, narration and, and backstory and everything, but very, very little actual action in this. Now, you know, as, as somebody who's, you know, knowledge of, of the Marvel universe is, I mean, I'm, I, I can, can discuss and I can talk about it. I know general things about the characters and their history and their interactions and their alliances, but to be able to, to, to drill down into individual stories like this, you know, I don't, I don't have the, the volumes of, of memory and minutia that, uh, that, that, that Rifen does for one. Uh, and Ron does as well. Just Ron does it with DC books, which I have absolutely no interest in having that kind of, kind of knowledge in, but, uh, you know, to, to see the interaction, yeah, I mean, it was lacking in action, but it was just, it was just interesting to see just a slice of what comics were like 30 years ago. And that really is what that is. That's the thing. The main thing that I pulled away from this issue was the fact that, you know, you could look at this and I can remember reading comics like this when I was younger, when they were first coming out and having that same sense of, okay, they're building up, they're building up, they're building up. All right. Ooh, action. All right, cool. And then of course, you know, like I mentioned before, there's a whole bunch of really cool ads. You know, you've got the, the, the grit ad, of course. Uh, they've got an ad for some Corgi uh, DC Superman miniature cars that I remember. I actually remember having at least three of this set. Um, it was just very just a, 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 a slice of '70s comics Americana, and you know, got a fair bit of nostalgia out of it. Uh, enjoyment as a as an adult comic consumer, meh. I probably you know the adult me would give it. C plus, but I can see where if I had been reading this when I first when it first came out in 1979 and I was seven years old, oh, I probably would have been oh yeah, this is an A. So I've got. The I, I tend to uh, yes. I tend to agree with you on a C plus. 
but I, I if as a C plus, it's still contingent to me upon reading all four okay. issues. <laughs> yeah. Just as a standalone issue, I don't think I could give it more than a C. Yeah. Just well, because I'll... it it's so dependent on the other stories. Which of yeah, course I... means now that Ron, this is the one issue out of this series that I have, and so if you want to get One and four, then, just to really, you know, get even for the whole Blackthorn thing, feel free. My birthday's coming up in July, so. Uh, okay, I, I'll recall that. I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. <laughs> this, this, this story reminded me, and I don't have a copy of this, believe it or not. So I went online, and I was reading the, the, uh, the summary online, which is like a 17-page essay. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and and I, I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm like, uh, wait a minute, I thought this was a team-up issue. Oh, wait a minute. Here, the last two lines, they team mm-hmm. up. Um, <laughs> Which they don't even really team up. <laughs> they don't. They, they happen to be in the same place at the same time, sort of. Yeah, they kind of have the same goal. <laughs> but, you know, this is, I, and I thought this was the interesting thing, was this, this is uh, atypical for uh, Marvel team-up books, because almost always a Marvel team-up book would have whoever the, the two heroes are meet, and they would fight by some misunderstanding. Yeah, that, that would be the prototypical story. Yeah, and and I was like, wow, this is not that story. No, this reads more like a Jim Shooter story where there's a lot of talking all the time. Well, this one, we, we didn't actually hit on at the beginning of, of this that it's uh, written by uh, Chris Claremont, who is known for a lot of talking. <laughs> uh, it's drawn by Sal Buscema with uh, Steve Lealoha doing Aloha. the inks. Diana Albers was the letterer, Bill Sean was the colorist, Al Milgram was the editor, and Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. So good yeah. call, Ron. Yeah, I, 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 this, this is exactly the kind of book I, would, I did read in the 70s for Marvel, and hence why I don't read Marvel. Uh, this, 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 I would say, story-wise, is a solid... D. It never, never interests me in any way, shape, or form. But I, I think, I think, it, like I said, it is a little bit dependent on you reading all four issues, uh, which I have done. Uh, I did that when, when Jeff, when you told me which book you were going to do, I read all four. And uh, as a four-issue set, I think it, it's a nice. I, I was, I almost feel like saying standalone, but standalone indicates a one-issue, one and done. But just the four-issue story, it, t- it tells a decent story where you feel like there's some stakes, uh, and yet at the end it's, it all goes back to status quo and nothing has changed, uh, which I guess is, is you know kind of important in these stories. And, just to, and, to and I have to say this. Some of this is just... Uh-oh. I think we lost Ron. He was about to make the most poignant point ever. In, in his life... This was this was the the, the 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 shining moment that Ron has been waiting for, and technology has cursed him yet again. Wonder if he's doing Skype at the library. Maybe that's part of the problem. Let's see if we can get Ron back to finish his point. But uh, since he didn't he didn't actually have the issue in front of him to look at, uh, I can make mention of the fact that I think the artwork in the story is very nice. Yes. Uh, I've made a point, I've talked in the past about Sal Buscema, who's the artist on this, and how I think the, his best work was done 
when Klaus Janssen was inking him, uh, specifically on a run of the Defenders that I uh, recall. But this artwork is similarly good. You know, the style stylistically, it's a little bit different with the inking, but it also just it's very very uh, indicative of the style of the time, almost trying to capture kind of a John Byrne look without yeah. totally imitating it. Almost treating, like, say, the John Byrne look as the house style. Right. And, and, I, yeah. and I, I like it. I think the storytelling is, is pretty good. I think, you know, it, it, it just has a nice, clean look to it. Even, you know, the scenes at night kind of have the muted color to them. Yeah, the big the big two thir- two thirds of a page that first shot that we get of Shang Chi there on page fifteen, I, I think is exactly what you're talking about. How's that 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 typical seventies Marvel style? Yes. Um, and just you know the the first first glimpse that we get of the supposed lead character of this issue up against one of the main villains, and you know, it's a very dramatic, you know, night scene in the background, an unconscious Nick Fury in the foreground, and just, it's just very, very you know, detailed, but very, uh, you know, like, you, like you said, so that, that house style, almost, almost burn-esque, if you will. And the, the, the fight scenes are, are very, you know, very clean. You could kind of follow the motion on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I think the art in this is, is exceptional. Uh, I would give the artwork uh, a solid B. Yes. Borderline B plus. But the the story is a little convoluted, and again, like I said, I think it's dependent on you reading all four issues. And if you do read all four issues, especially if you sit and read them in one sitting, there's almost too much of a flashback to what occurred before. You know, I mean, some of it's not in the Marvel team-up issues, the, the stuff with Nomad and everything. But basically, almost a quarter of the issue is dedicated to flashback. Right. Yeah. The first that that first the first quarter of the issue talking about how you know Madame Hydra becomes the Viper and how she got to where she was, and but then they completely. But again, I, I keep coming back to how they completely skip over why Black Widow is the school teacher Nancy Rushman and. Right. In the first yeah. issue, she's walking through the streets and she's, you know, there's a lot of expository uh, thought bubbles, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm just a school teacher walking through the streets. And no, then she no, goes no, to no, get no. mugged and, and Spider-Man rescues her and then he realizes she's Black Widow, but she doesn't know it. But she's got some, like, when he when he's fighting the muggers, she helps him and it's all out of reflex because she doesn't even know what she's doing. But it, it was it was fairly well handled, I guess, and you know ultimately in the last issue you find out that they put her through a whole brainwashing thing where they kind of cleared her memory, but luckily it all came back. Oh, good. Otherwise, what the heck would they have been doing with the new movies that are coming out now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not that they would you know, hold true to the comics or anything like that. Not going to get into Fantastic Four. Not going to get into the Fantastic Four. Not going to get into the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We could go on and on about what they're doing oh. with the new movie. Ron, are you back with us? Yes, I am. All right, you cut out on us while you were making a point, and I don't recall uh, what it was. I was just going to point out that the, yeah, there was some things in the story. Uh, Hydra taking over the, the Hello Carrier, that, you know, using it for nefarious purposes to uh, over Washington, D.C. That's just outlandish. I would never see that in a movie, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you, you seen the number, the number uh, one... with the soldier yet? 
Yeah, I, I went and saw it this last weekend. Oh, so did I. Yeah, I saw it on Sunday. I loved it. Yeah, I did too. Um, I, I, thought, I thought it was very well done. And did you watch uh, Agents of Shield last night? I have not been. I have not been watching the show. Believe it or not, it's uh, the the episode last night ties directly into the movie. Ah, it, it's on Hulu, and uh, unfortunately, I haven't been watching the episodes, and I'm I'm torn. The idea that should I watch it, not knowing who these characters really are, or does it really matter? Uh, if they're on Hulu, what I would recommend is you watch the last three, because there's kind of a storyline that's going on that's been building up. And in the most recent one is where it kind of then starts to intertwine with the movie. Mm-hmm. But there's, I mean, there's a character in there who has been in the last three issues and three issues, three episodes. <laughs> and uh, you probably would want to watch the three to kind of follow it through. Yeah. Okay. But it, it's, been, it's been improving steadily since it started. You know, and, and now it's, it's finally kind of hit the point where it is what I was anticipating it being when the show first went on the air. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of glad I stayed with it, even though at some points I was disappointed with it. I understand. Yeah. I, I have full intention of watching it now that, uh, now that walking dead is over for the season. I'll have a bit more time for that. So well, I shift right from walking dead mode into game of Thrones mode. Yes. I, I have I, no, no spoilers. I've yet to watch this week's episode. Yeah. That's what oh, they all get that. killed. Of course, it's it's George Martin. Of course, they all get killed. That's just that's par for the course. But no, that's what uh, I've got lined up for the rest of my evening once we're done here. Is is getting the old HBO Go queued up and and, and getting my Westeros on. I, I always always uh, made my kids. You know, my kids would go, "Oh, we have to read this book," and I I go, "Oh, that book. That book's a classic." And they look at me and I go, "And you know, classic means they die at the end." <laughs> that's my my standard spoiler line though when that's, everybody that's says it yeah. just oh yeah they, they all die, die. alright anybody got anything else on uh, on our Marvel before we shift to uh, to Ron's the next, uh, the next, epic the next hours of DC huh yep. <laughs> yeah y'all wake me up when it's time for a witty repertoire so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so who are you gonna call anyway uh, anyway and why don't we jump right into our DC then? Okay, uh, what I have is uh, it's actually DC Special Series number one, five star superhero spectacular, uh, priced at one dollar, dated nineteen seventy seven, released uh, June of seventy seven. And I can tell uh, you, I was buying these books when they were coming out. A dollar was a lot of money for a comic. It was. It was a, uh, probably the one of the most expensive books I ever saw at that point in time in my life. Um. Yeah, it's 80 pages of all new stories. It tells us that right on the cover. Uh, and it includes stories for The Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, The Atom, Batman. And i got to point this out. You know, next to a Justice League issue, this is the next best thing. They're all there together. Oh, separate. Though those early <laughs> Justice League issues were like that, too. Um, and then on top of it, and probably what uh, a little background on this. This book, I distinctly remember being the first comic book I bought. Oh wow! Uh, like I said, my brother was seven years older than me, so I he you know he was buying comics, so I would just read his. And uh, we were in uh, Dawson City, Yukon, and we were in, in a store, and 
my parents said, hey, you know, you know, we're going to be on the road for a little while. You might want to get something to read. And uh, I said, oh, good. My brother bought a comic. I pointed this out to him because it had all five heroes. And like I said, it was like almost like a Justice League book. Uh, and he goes, I don't know. I don't feel like reading a comic book. And he said, I'm going to get this. And he picked up issue four of Stalag, which we had never seen before. And it was first uh, a, a science fiction uh, magazine that, uh, that he got that. Well, I said, you know what? If you're not going to get it, I'm going to get this because I think this is too important to pass up. So actually, the copy I reviewed is the one I bought in 1977. Um, oh, wow. That's the pretty actual, cool. The actual one. That is, that is very cool. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I, I do have a little bit of uh, uh, stick to it this stuff. Anyway, uh, and what I remember most is that cover by Neil Adams with the heroes bursting out of the rocks. Uh, I thought, you know, that's just, that was just a great cover. Um, anyway, uh, we're getting into the issue. Uh, there's an index page which has uh, scenes depicting from all five stories, uh, and I had to look it up, but uh, Gemma Preo, who uh, was doing, draw, drew a lot of Batman stories, uh, did that uh, index page. Uh, now, do you want me to do each one of these uh, stories separately, or would you like to just Actually, go through that's it? what I was going to ask you. Would you rather do each one and stop and talk about the story, or would you rather just kind of go through the five and talk about the issue on a whole? Whatever you think is better, I'm fine with. Um, well, let's, 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 I'll, I'll try and get through all the stories, and if you, if at the end of each one, if someone really has to say something, go ahead and say it. Okay? All right, you rule. Okay, thank you. Uh, the first story up was uh, The Flash and How to Prevent a Flash, a uh, 13-page story by Carrie Bates, uh, pencils by Irvin Novak, and inks by Frank McLaughlin. Uh, and, and in this story, uh, a bolt of lightning strikes the science lab at Central City Police Headquarters, and a blonde scientist is doused with chemicals and electricity. But this is another bolt, as Barry Allen watches this happen to his lab assistant, Patty. Uh, she starts to show the same signs that Barry did after his accident, but he is worried that this time there were different chemicals in the lab, and they may might make the results unexpected. Uh, well, like, he would, he, like he was like he was planning his original accident. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or Wally West accident, which also happened in his lab. Oh, okay. So All basically, right. his lab has been struck by lightning three times in this, at this point. Why um, is he not moved? I know, exactly. Or at least move the chemicals. Or put a lightning rod outside. Something. Uh, I mean, there's got to be an OSHA workman's comp suit there. <laughs> anyway, his worst fears are confirmed when she becomes a running disaster for Central City. But wait. Barry already figured this all out in his head. And in the time the lightning strikes, he removes Patty from the chemical dousing and saves the day. Ta-da! Yay! This and and basically this is an imaginary story. As and opposed I, to all the other stories. Exactly. <laughs> I, it just kills me. It's and this is uh, probably a quintessential example of what they would call a golden age comic book story, where there's a there's a, a little bit of plot and then it didn't really matter because it never really happened to start with. Um, it all happened but, in your imagination. That's right. And uh, actually, in Barry's imagination, uh, I, I think it is interesting that Barry goes through this mental thing, and all he can see is the bad things happening. 
he, he can't see the positive. So, so basically, though, what, what Barry did was he just decided, based on his own conjecture, that she shouldn't be a Flash because she'll screw it up because she's not as good as me and Wally. Well, that and she's, uh, well, she's a woman. Uh, no, I and misogynistic <laughs> he didn't say that. No, that misogynistic wow. bastard. I, he sh- no wonder they killed him. Well, he killed his wife. No, she was reverse flash there. But anyway, but yeah, no, yeah, he just makes an assumption and he runs with it, so to speak. Unintended. Um, but but uh, but I do have to say, uh, the the art in this is uh, is absolutely fabulous. Uh, uh, Novak and McLaughlin are the regular Flash uh, artists for most of the seventies, and this 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 looks like quintessential Flash. And of course, Terry Bates uh, wrote, I think, almost every Flash issue uh, between like seventy five and uh, the end of the series. So, okay, second story up: uh, Green Lantern in He Who Slaughters. This is an 11-page story by Danny O'Neill and art by Joe Staten. Um, an alien, eons before Earth even existed, promises to fight to, quote, fight against our enemies and protect the innocents, unquote. Hal Jordan is on Oa for a qualifying test and finds out a black hole is coming at the planet. The Guardians tell him a black hole. Oh, black hole. I'm I'm sorry. I thought we were transitioning <laughs> to an entirely different podcast. Sorry. Anyway, the guardians tell him to go home because the rest of the uh, Green Lantern Corps can handle it. On his way um, back, he finds a derelict spaceship, and in scanning it, awakens the alien, who identifies the energy source as the same as their enemy uses. <gasps> There is a fight, and Hal is knocked out and starts drifting towards the black hole. The alien traces the energy to Oa and encloses the planet so nothing can get out. The Guardians and the Green Lanterns are powerless to stop the black hole. Hal wakes up just moments before being sucked into the black hole, figures if he can't stop the ship because it's yellow, he will (laughs) take his ring off sneak aboard and confront his enemy. Hal tries to reason with the alien, but resorts to, quote, the language of violence, unquote. Uh, Once the alien is subdued, Hal points out how it was how it was going to cause the death of many innocents by stopping them from dealing with the black hole. The alien understands, knocks out Hal, chucks him to space, and crashes his ship into the black hole, causing it to implode. Seemed like the thing to do at the time. Um, and this this is my comment I, I had, and that's the story. I literally that's the story. And my comment is this is this is a self serving. Hal Jordan says at the end, "quote What's important is that he could comprehend his mistake and had the courage enough to mend it at the ultimate cost." And who cares if he's dead? Right? <laughs> Basically. It's a, yeah, tertiary, I, it's a tertiary character. As long as he back. learned a lesson, the fact that he died is irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No light. No, it, it's just an alien. They're not. They're not worth the same as anybody else, right? <laughs> and, and by the way, I use the term alien every time because the funny thing is, Green Lantern stories. It's chock full of aliens. 
but I use the term alien for this one creature because they never give him a name. They never give him any characteristics. They don't – I don't even know exactly – he looks like sort of a brain with a robot face or something. I'm not sure. Um, it, they, they, they truly made him as generic as possible. So you could not empathize with him in any way, shape, or form. And I was wondering, and I couldn't find any uh, relation in uh, any databases on this, the energy source that their enemy uses just happens to be the same energy source that the Green Lanterns use. Hmm? Hmm. Well, well, is, is that, is that foreshadowing? It's convenient. Is, uh, yeah, I, I think know. you're giving them too much credit to say it's foreshadowing. <laughs> well, it's, it's Denny O'Neill, so who knows? Sometimes he writes brilliant stuff, sometimes he don't. Yeah, I thought this one was don't. Yeah. Um, anybody else got comments on that one? Oh, I got one more thing on that. Art by Joe uh, uh, Staten. Um, Joe Staten became a regular uh, uh, artist on the Green Lantern series uh, for a lot of the 80s and uh, actually went on to do the Green Lantern Corps series uh, when the title changed. Uh, this actually is his very first Green Lantern story he drew in uh, Inked. So, I don't think it's his best. No, no. But uh, you, you can you can sort of, especially when you go back and look at some of the stuff he did later on in Green Lantern, just, yeah, you can see this is very much a freshman attempt. Okay. Um, third story up. Aquaman, because I know we've all been waiting for an Aquaman story. Uh, this one's called A King Without a Sea. Uh, 12-page story by Gary Conway, pencils by Dick Dillon, and inks by Jack Abel. Uh, the plot is, a wealthy western Iranian named Omar has found a jewel that converts the sun's energies so a man can become a human sunburst. Omar transforms and tells his friend, who happens to be an ambassador to the UN, to tell them he will recreate the Persian Empire. He flies off to show the world his power by attacking an unsuspecting Aquaman, who is returning home in a jet sub he followed to tell his wife that Black Manta has killed their son, Arthur Jr. Aquaman is not thinking straight due to his grief, so when he's attacked, he commands the sea creatures to attack. And of course, Sunburst fries them all and causes them to die, which of course causes Aquaman to fly into a blind rage, who is then easily defeated. Sunburst throws him back into the jet sub and tosses him into the middle of a desert, so Aquaman will die. Um, Aquaman awakes to the realization that he has no superpowers to save him in this situation. So using his wits, he scrounges things from the jet sub, makes a torch for warmth, makes a shovel out of part of the airplane parts, uh, finds water, puts him in a, a, a can to carry it, and as he's hiking through the desert, lucks out as he sees a plane and uses the uh, water can to signal it. Uh, Sunburst at this point is telling the Iranians that he is their new emperor, and they aren't really pleased with that. Uh, Achman shows up, knocks him off his pedestal, uh, he uses his uh, skill and wit to turn Sunburst's power on himself using a small mirror. It looked like a lady's compact. Uh, and chalks up the reason that uh, Sunburst did these things was 
the the basic of all human evils, uh, greed. So it's, it's making a social comment all the while putting Aquaman in the desert. Yes. I, I thought it was interesting. This is 1977. This is, what, uh, about a, a year before the Iranian hostage situation? Uh, I think two years. Wasn't it 79? Was it 79? I it was 444 days. That so it would have been so it would have been seventy eight because they they released them the day Reagan, which was the, the day so Reagan took been, office. Yeah, so it would have been that would have been eighty one. So four hundred four. No, it was seventy nine then. Seventy nine. Okay, so it's two years before that. Um, <clears throat> so I, I just thought it was interesting because they specifically it ain't unlike usual where they make up a a country name. You know, uh, they actually identified this as Iran. Uh, he, this was a person who uh, was going to reinstate the Persian Empire. Um, and there's a lot of references to uh, uh, um, Alexander, Alexander, Alexander uh, and the greatness that he uh, brought to the, uh, the world. But uh, overall, one of those weird stories, and I have to say this because I don't, I don't think I've ever actually read an Aquaman comic book itself. Um, but unlike Jeff's book, where they have to do all these flashbacks to explain everything that's going on, here we basically get like two panels, and he's like, he's flying in the jet sub, and he's like, hey, I've got to go home, and i got to tell my wife that Black Man has killed my, uh, my kid. And uh, and and that's pretty much all you get. There's a footnote by the editor, uh, Paul Levitz, at, at the bottom of the page that says, "See Aquaman 58." So, um, but yeah, there, there's no there's no filling in any of this fact. You either have to know who Aquaman is, you have to know who Black Man is. They they don't explain any of that. Mm. It just it is. Yeah, I don't. See, I grew up a Marvel fan. And I, I took came into DC later. And in this era of DC, I didn't think that they did as good a, of a job of making you feel like it was one universe as Marvel did. And I think that was, you know, and, and it's it's trying to look back to, to remember what, you know, I thought 35, 40 years ago. Uh, but I, I, think, I think the one universe of, uh, factor of Marvel was my, one of my big appeals at that time, I think that was one of the things that that made me more of a Marvel fan. Yeah, uh, there's, uh, there was the, the individual series usually did not cross over with any time they were doing uh, Justice League or anything like that. And when they did, they didn't seem to have the resonance that it made a difference that they crossed over. Right. Uh, and, and, and and I mean, there's something to be said for it. I mean, I, I like the DC Silver Age stuff, and and I, I've talked about this recently too, where it seems to me that Marvel. DC started the Silver Age. Then Marvel came aboard and they pushed forward a little bit in the storytelling or made it a little bit more sophisticated. And then they moved into the Bronze Age, whereas DC seemed to have stayed in the Silver Age. To, to me, it felt like DC, with certain notable exceptions like the Teen Titans and a lot of the stuff that Denny O'Neill did. But other than that, it seemed like they stayed in the Silver Age almost until Crisis. Mm-hmm. And then moved into the Bronze Age and quickly moved into the, you know, whatever you want to call the age beyond that, the modern age or 
the uh, chromium age, whatever they call it. Uh, yeah. uh, the Teflon age. Well, of but, course, and I'll, I'll recommend anyone who's interested in that whole discussion about where does the Silver Age end and the Bronze Age start. Uh, uh, send them over to Bronze. Emily and Professor Allen? Yeah, exactly. There you go. Because um, uh, that's, that's the, I, I, and like you, I, I, I didn't even realize there was a Bronze Age. I, I thought it was all Silver Age until Crisis. Um, See, and I and I came completely late to the party. The first the first DC comic that I bought was the trade paperback of Kingdom Come. Oh yeah, you did come in late. Yeah, I came I came in very late, and that's only because I was in that issue. So, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> oh well, okay. Leave me alone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the next story, uh, and I think probably the weakest of all the stories in this this book. Uh, is the atom in the telegraph telephone tangle? A ten-page story by Paul uh, Kupferberg, penciled by Stephen Stills. Hey, I like this music. Uh, and and inks by uh, Bob McLeod. Uh, the uh, story is that Professor Ray Palmer, who is known as the Atom, is chatting with Professor Weiner. And it seems Weiner has just received Alexander Graham Bell's prototype phone from the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, and it turns out it's a fake, and it could have never worked. Uh, find that the last time the prototype had been seen in public was in 1876 at the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. The atom uses the time pool, excuse me, the atom uses the time pool to go back and investigate. Uh, time pool happens to be in uh, one of his buddy's laboratories. But see, it's a time hole that's too small for humans to use. Unless you can shrink yourself down to six inches. How convenient. How convenient, <laughs> yes. Uh, immediately, he, he comes across a man trying to hurt uh, Alexander Graham Bell named Elijah Gray, a rival inventor that claims that he invented the phone and that Bell had beaten him to the patent office. Uh, he, uh, losing Gray and Bell in the crowds of a quarter million people at the exhibition, uh, eventually, the Atom finds Bell and Watson tied up under a giant steam engine, uh, with Gray telling him how he swapped out the phones so when and it doesn't work in public, Bell will be disgraced and Gray will get his recognition. Hearing enough, the Atom uh, knocks uh, Gray out, loosens Bell's bonds so he can escape saving Watson's life. Uh, the Atom returns through time to recover the, the real phone 100 years later, uh, after it was hit. Uh, there's, I don't know what to say about this story. It sounds, it sounds like a rejected Doctor Who episode idea from like yeah. Colin Baker era. It sounds like a rejected Adam story. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it may have been. I mean, it, it the, the the art was fine, but it, it, the story uh, just I. It's it, there's a, there's like a page in here where the Adam making sure he doesn't get stepped on by Ulysses S. Grant, and <laughs> it, it doesn't add anything to the story. Uh, yeah, it's it, this this is just a little just a little out there, yeah. and and really seems to serve no real purpose. <laughs> and I and I just like the the logic that uh, somehow. Uh, Gray had taken the real phone and hid it. So the fake phone was what was at the exhibition. Now, it was going to be demonstrated 
at the exhibition, so it wouldn't have worked. But that seems not to be a problem, and that the atom thinks that he can go back go back into the future, and a hundred years later, wherever he this phone was hidden at, it will still be there. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, no this, one would, no, there's no chance of anybody touching an area for a hundred years. Yeah, in Philadelphia, of all places. <laughs> um, okay, the last one on this thing. Uh, yeah, just move. Uh, let's move on. Pay yeah, no more on. attention to the Adam story. There's nothing to see here. Move <laughs> yeah, along. Move along. Move along. <laughs> Please. Um, the last one in here is uh, the Batman uh, on the Dead on Arrival conspiracy. It's a 17-page story by Martin Pascal, uh, pencils by Mike Nesser, inks by Joe Rubenstein. And this is my longest synopsis, so hold up, bear with me. Uh, Batman comes across some uh, thieves uh, stealing mail with silent explosives. Batman gets the letter, and the bad guys get away in an anti-gravity ray. The letter is addressed to Bruce Wayne and starts, Dear Mr. Wayne, if you're reading this, I am dead. Uh, it turns out Jason Burr uh, has an identical twin brother who was kidnapped at birth and trained by the secret cult of Cobra. Now he's the leader of the cult called Cobra. And he feels his only weakness is that since they are identical twins and he can, they can feel each other's pain, that if Jason dies, it would kill Cobra. Batman uses his detective skills and figures out where Cobra is hiding. And attacks, uh, and attacks. Uh, by the way, he, he the, the place he's hiding at just happens to be uh, Rala Ghoul's uh, secret uh, Himalayan fort. Uh, coincidence? Um, How did he know where the key was? <laughs> well, Batman, you know, can pick locks. Anyway, oh. he he gets he gets knocked out because a full frontal on a fort's the best way to do things. Uh, finds himself with Jason over the Lazarus Pit, which is a lot of ex. ex, ex uh, they, they talk a lot about what the Lazarus Pit is. Uh, which can bring people back from the dead as mindless followers of Cobra. Uh, so, taking live people it will and putting them in there, it will kill them and then resurrect them as Cobra slaves. Hey, real uh, quick, is Zartan in this issue? Zartan? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wrong, wrong Cobra. Never mind. Wrong Cobra, <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, and knowing is half the battle. Anyway. <laughs> Cobra is the other half. Yes, it is. Uh, Cobra has figured out <laughs> how... Sorry. <laughs> Cobra has figured out how to protect himself from his brother's death with the neural neutralizer. Oh, and I forgot he had stolen Jason's girl and has her under his mind control. Uh, this is important later on. Uh, Batman, <laughs> using some acrobatics, gets his utility belt off so it can fall in the bat and blow it up. So blowing up a bat of acid onto you is much better than falling in the bat of acid, it seems. Um, huh. uh, Interesting. Well, both Batman and Jason point out to each other later on that, yeah, I've got burns from that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, this gets him and Jason down. Uh, Batman takes down Cobra, and Jason gets the girl. Uh, Batman will hold off uh, Cobra's army while Jason and the babe 
uh, get in the gondola and go down the mountainside. On the way down, Jason's uh, kissing his girlfriend, and she stabs him in the back with an 18-inch knife that he never noticed she had. Um, Jason, Jason and his girlfriend fall to their deaths together. Uh, Cobra laughs that he had killed her and brought her back using the pit, and her headdress was how he was controlling her with telepathy. Uh, now he was free. Uh, he throws himself off the cliff and gets zapped by his anti-gravity ray and flies off, and Batman swears he will get justice for Jason Burr. The end? <laughs> yeah, really. It's... I was looking, are there any more pages here? Uh, no, that's it. <laughs> I guess it's continued in the next issue. No, there's no next issue. This, 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 you had to. This, there's a great thing about this story. This actually was supposed to be issue nine of uh, the comic book Cobra, uh-huh. but it got canceled on issue eight. And uh, and so they went, they went back and rewrote part of it. And it, did they, was it was otherwise was it intact though? Was the artwork the way it appeared? I mean, or did they add Batman in to make you know make him more prominent? I believe we've lost Ron again. We did lose Ron. Uh, well, Tom, let's see if we can get him back. Ron? Yes, I'm back. Sorry. Okay. Well, no, no not your fault, but uh. What what I, I just before you cut out, I was starting to ask was, uh, did they rework the artwork at all to make Batman more prominent? Because it doesn't really seem feel like a Cobra issue. It feels um, more like a Batman issue. It it does. Um, I don't know how much they reworked it. Um, I mean, I mean, even in the Cobra issue, they would have to have all the exposition to explain what had happened up to this point. Because he couldn't just have Batman show up and go, oh, by the way, I got a letter and explained everything to me. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, the, the, in the, uh, there's a text page um, in this issue that explains what all these stories are and why they put them there. And uh, it said basically that there, this was actually an original story that was scripted for this magazine. Uh, even though it had been originally plotted out to be the next issue of Cobra, so that's they pretty knew, interesting, though. So they knew Cobra was getting canceled, and they they rewrote it from. I mean, but a seventeen-page story is almost the whole length of a comic book. Yeah, they they must have pulled something out of it to maybe change it a little bit. I like the artwork in the story. It, I'm it, gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say the Mike Nesser and uh, Joe Rubenstein. This is the best Neil Adams art I've ever seen. Well, no, I've seen better Neil Adams art by Neil Adams, but this is the best Neil Adams art I've seen by somebody other than Neil Adams. Uh, it's clear I, he's he, that he, they're uh, they're they're copying the Neil Adams style, though. There's no I mean, question yeah, about I mean, it. There's there's seen there are panels in here that look. I know I've seen Neil Adams draw. I don't think it's quite as dynamic as Neil Adams layouts, though. But it's it's pretty good. And, and, you know, I, and I, I think as a kid, I thought it was Neil Adams. Because I had the cover on it, it's a Neil Adams song. Mm-hmm. It must be somewhere in that book, right? Because someone doesn't just do covers, do they? Uh, <laughs> um, 
all too much. Uh, I, I will say this: this is at a point. DC did a for some reason they did a they they did a, a, the Joker series. They did uh, the uh, uh, Cobra series. They did the uh, the, uh, the uh, Secret Society of Super Villains series. Um, they even did uh, Blitzkrieg, which was the the Nazi series. Um, yeah, we we did they, the issue one of that uh, way back when. Yeah, God, and, uh, even even when we go on other people's podcasts, we can't go without mentioning the Fuhrer. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just pointing out that I don't know, and the problem with all these series is the same thing, and that is, the if you want to keep reading them, you have to sort of like the person that's in it. And you can't like the bad guy. And they did have an editorial mandate, I believe, that the bad guy couldn't be victorious when all was said and done. So he's the hero of the book, but he's still the bad guy. He's still the bad guy. And that, and that's the thing. I, and I'm pretty sure I did read Cobra when they were coming out. Um, and every issue, basically, you're like, oh, Cobra's finally going to get his uh, comeuppance. And, and nope, he always somehow, oh, I just happen to have a jetpack right here. Boom. And he takes off and... And he's caused all this havoc, and he and he never pays for it. Uh, I thought this was interesting in this story, um, where at the end, Batman basically says, "If I have to personally kill him, I will do it." Uh, that's that. That's uh, that's pretty heavy for a comic book Batman. Yeah, I, w- I would tend to agree on that. Uh, Especially for a couple people he doesn't even really know. I mean, he he sort of knew uh, uh, Jason, uh, but he, he he doesn't know he doesn't know these people, and they just just the horrificness of the what Cobra is doing is what's driving him. Um, but yeah, I. I have to say that this and uh, definitely the uh, Aquaman um, story—they these are dark stories. Yes. There's, there's. I, I was reading this thing, and I'm going. As a kid, I can't imagine me enjoying this. This is this is dark. Do you uh, not remember is, reading this? I remember reading it, but I and I loved it as a kid. I mean, I remember that that. Uh, Aquaman story because one it's the only Aquaman story I've ever read I think um, until he, the miniseries, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean that these these are some pretty dark stories. I mean they deal with a lot of death, and I mean not superhero death, but not in the inconsequential death uh, that happens in a lot of comics. Uh, it's it there's no joy in it. There's mm. nothing fun with it. It's it's basically. You know, kill or be killed, and then kill, and someone dies. But and, the Flash and Adam stories are almost inconsequential and silly. Yeah, it's almost like you got two Golden Age stories and three very Bronze Age type stories. Where, and the Bronze Age stories aren't well Bronze Age stories. Uh, the, the Batman Cobra story is the most developed of all the characters. I don't know the the Aquaman. There is a lot going on there, and and they did a fairly good job. Jerry Conway did a very good job of wrapping that this is only going to happen because he's grieving at the beginning, and once he's in a situation where he has to save his own life, uh, 
he basically clears his head, gets his priorities in order, and then at the end, his comments about Sunburst are really not comments about Sunburst, they're the comments about Black Mana and why Black Mana would kill his son. And it just basically comes down to greed. Right. Which isn't true because Black Manor hated Aquaman because he's, you know, illegitimate relative. Anyway, but that's just me. Um, but yeah, all these stories, uh, as a kid, I thought these were great. These were, you know, the Adam was the weakest one. But uh, going back and reading this now, this is dark. Uh, this is uh, troubling in some, I mean, I know the the uh, the death on arrival conspiracy literally almost gave me nightmares as a kid. Comic book stories never did that because it's one where the bad guy gets away, mm. and it is no there's nothing positive that comes out of it. I mean, Batman showing up doesn't change a thing. It's almost like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I mean the dude gets stabbed in the back in it, and uh, this may be why I have a, I, I have issues with women. <laughs> I would hope it wouldn't have that strong of a negative effect on you. Uh, you, well, I was don't a know, kid. you don't know Ron. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, but I, I have to say, the art in all these were, I think, were great, ex- uh, except for this uh, Joe Staten one. But I mean, finding out that he was, uh, uh, this was his first Green Lantern, you know, I, I, I'll cut him a little bit of a break. Um, I won't cut uh, Denny O'Neill a break for the, the horrific job he wrote that thing in. Um, and, and and overall, I uh, uh, I think I think it's a good solid uh, a C plus. You're talking about the the whole eighty page eighty pages of all new stories. Yeah, when you I mean when you consider it by the standards of what comes out today and. Uh, you know, taking into account inflation, a dollar then is probably the equivalent of two fifty now. And yet, if this book came out, it would be seven or eight dollars now. Easily. If I was paying yeah. seven or eight dollars for this book, I would not be happy. Yeah. But if I was paying two two fifty, somewhere well, in that range, which is probably, like I said, the equivalent of where the economy is now. So going to the dollar back then. Uh, I think this was a good value for you to, for your money. Yeah, uh, I, I got one more thing to say um, on this. I think what's this? I was going to say. Um, yeah, I noticed uh, in here, uh, Green Lantern and uh, Aquaman had both just gotten their series back after being basically out of print for about uh, this is seventy seven. They both went out of print in I think seventy two. Uh, so it's been about five years since either one of them had their own series. Um, the Adams was back up in uh, Action Comics, uh, Venture Comics, and uh, of course uh, Cobra just had his series canceled. So this is sort of, um, I think there was an idea of, hey, let's uh, see if we can't drive people to these books, mm-hmm. uh, and wrap it around with a, a Batman story for a book that just got canceled. So. Uh, um, there might have been, a, there might have been a, a little bit of uh, wish fulfillment here on DC, being in, uh, and out of all these stories, and I think this is even more important. Out of all these stories, only the Flash story has ever been reprinted. Why? 
Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, because the Flash story appeared in a, a collection of greatest Flash stories ever told. Get out of here. Seriously? I'm not kidding. That's a pretty low standard, then, if, that's, <laughs> if that qualifies as, as, as one of the best. Good Lord. Well, it was 13 pages. I mean, they needed to fill something, probably. But, uh, but yeah, it was thirteen I, I, pages worth of a DC equivalent of of of, of the the Bobby uh, Bobby Ewing episode. It it didn't well, really happen. It never happened. We spent all this time and, and it didn't happen. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it's interesting that you know with all all this stuff and uh, I mean that these things haven't even been reprinted in the the uh, showcase presents anywhere. I mean these these are never you're never going to see them unless you buy this issue and read it. Yeah. So now, I mean, it's, now it's, you can put out your warning. <laughs> it's kind of the way I look at it is, you know, if you were ten years old and you picked up this issue, and and you know, like I said, it's eighty pages and it's it's all varying degrees of entertaining stories, uh, and it's fine. But I don't think there's anything here that I would go out of my way to seek out. Well, for for those uh, completionists. Just letting y'all know. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of surprised. I, I thought the Aquaman was going to be printed somewhere, but it hasn't. So, um, and that's what I got on this. Anybody else got anything? That's about all I got too. Uh, like I said, you know, it's fairly entertaining, but overall, I would describe it as innocuous. But I would say, it, you know, for a starting point in a collection, not bad. Oh, and I think it's it's perfect for the purposes that you had it for a young kid picking it up and looking for something to read. You really don't have to know too much, except for the Aquaman story and maybe the Batman one. You don't have to know a heck of a lot in the way of the history. You know, they're just kind of self-contained stories that you can just read uh, and and be fairly entertained by, and you don't have to be particularly sophisticated to uh to get what's going on not a lot of mental heavy lifting involved here no 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 and not no no world building uh and and nothing that's nothing that's likely to have except for the fact again in the aquaman one dealing with the death of his son uh nothing that's likely to have long-standing ramifications in any event well uh, I'll tell you my one thing that did jump out at me uh, in the Batman story. There's the handwritten letter by uh, Jason Burr. I had the hardest time reading that <laughs> as an adult. Like the, the it is it is it is cursive and it is printed and it's comic book size. And Ooh. we were talking just the other night, uh, Ron, you and I, about how uh, how. Cursive is kind of a lost art with the, in the computer age, and that you know our children aren't even learning really to read and write in cursive anymore. So uh, that could prove to be a real problem for people as as the years go by. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Nowadays, that would be uh, you know this was a text message sent by Jason on his <laughs> iPhone, and then, and then they could just print it, so and everyone could read it. Mm. But because it was a letter, and I just thought it was funny that you know. They're, they're stealing U.S. mail, uh, you know, so that makes Cobra a, a, a felon. Uh, and the, now the full force of the United States Postal Service is after him. 
They're going to get him the way they did Capone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess unless either of you have anything more on this one, I'll uh, thank you two for coming on. Hey, thanks a lot for having us on. This was a blast. I, I Paul, enjoyed I having you. It. I enjoyed having you, and I will look forward to having you two again. Absolutely. Anytime. Love to, of course, love to do you, know, you guys are welcome on. Scott is welcome on. Ryan is banned. Yes. <laughs> banned from back to the bins. We will make, we'll make sure that he is aware of his, his persona non grata status. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and don't worry, Paul. Next time uh, I come on, I'm, I've, I've got an independent that's so obscure it makes uh, Paul smile look like a, a mega hit. Ooh. <laughs> I'm not sure there's any such animal, but uh, <laughs> you can do your best. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.